This is Hans Reamer, Montgomery County Council Member, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. And today, back on the podcast due to popular demand, Natasha Mayhew. Michael and Natasha, how are you today? All good. Doing good. Yeah. Excellent. Today on the podcast, this, we're really going to touch all the bases. We're going to talk about the federal shutdown. We'll recap the state of the state. We'll talk about party priorities. And then we'll get into a public safety issue. And Michael, Natasha, we promise... No Kerwin this week. I know it's going to be difficult, but we're going to try our best. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Okay. So let's jump right in. The shutdown is over. As of Friday, there was a deal struck to reopen the government. But is there another shutdown looming? I mean, it seems like that's the talk of the town, not only in D.C., but also here in Annapolis and, and really everywhere. I mean, it's a three-week deal, right? right? So the clock is ticking until the middle of February for the federal actors to come up with something else. And we don't know we, we don't know what the something else might be. We don't know what the or else is. So it's left everybody with questions. Uh, we saw members of our congressional delegation all in using varying language, mm-hmm. all saying we don't want to see a shutdown again. Nobody in Maryland does. But it's 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 still sort of a, a big unknown what you know how, how this could land. Yeah, Natasha, I mean, we know that this has had a big f- effect on our local economy. We've heard a lot of talk in the General Assembly about this, and obviously we feel it more than others might just because of our proximity to the nation's capital. Right, and there's so many workers that were out for those few weeks without um, receiving their paychecks, mm-hmm. being able to make rent, buy food. I mean, it certainly has a significant impact on everyone's day-to-day, um, and with some workers, uh, particularly contractors, not um, even sure that they'll ever get uh, back pay. Yeah, certainly, and then the effect on the economy for folks who are you know, working in the service industry or providing services, if people aren't going to D.C. and working, those folks suffer as well. Yeah, it's, it's also triggered an interesting mini-policy debate here in Annapolis and maybe in other states too about at what point is someone actually unemployed and eligible for unemployment benefits. Ordinarily, that's over weeks and weeks. But you know, in this circumstance, you had a bunch of federal employees. You go five weeks and you miss two full paychecks. The idea of you know getting a stopgap payment through the unemployment process doesn't sound like an unreasonable thing. It's not what the system was really built around. But we're having hearings in Annapolis over this last week talking about maybe we should be more responsive to a situation like that, especially if this is the way Washington's going to be doing its affairs. Yeah, certainly some mixed signals on what will happen if there's no funding for a border wall. We know the effect on our economy. And Natasha, Michael, the governor this week gave his state of the state address, and he talked about this and (laughs) implored D.C. to not shut down the government for the reasons that we just stated. But let's talk about the state of the state. And, uh, you know, we heard about a big tax cut announcement, and that didn't really materialize. It turned out that that announcement was really a series of bills that have already been introduced. 
I think that's to a certain degree that's that's kind of a a matter of who you are, right? So so people like us, we're leafing through the daily synopsis in Annapolis and watching House Bill one fifty four, House Bill one fifty five every day. <laughs> we're reading through all these things. We're trying to worry about what things might be good or bad for county government. So we're paying attention to this every day. Most citizens are not. That's true. So, so the idea that you know the governor had introduced several bills on paper, but waited until the state of the state to say, "I have a vision for what we can do through the tax code to affect some changes and and do some of my priority things." I, I mean, some people are going to say, "Boy, that was a that was a swing and a miss." They told us there was going to be this big surprise announcement, and it wasn't a big surprise, but. There were an awful lot of people, I'm sure, watching the state of the state who had not heard about he wants to do this, you know, a thing for for student loan interest or for a variety of hometown heroes sure, or sure. you know these you know manufacturing businesses and so forth. So that's news to an awful lot of people. Some you know some inside baseball types were wrinkling their nose a little bit about it, but you know that, that happens around here. Yeah, that's a really good point, right? <laughs> I mean, I think if you're watching the news and you see the state of state is coming, and then you hear that there's going to be an announcement, you're not leafing through synopses every day. You don't know these bills have been introduced. So for the general public, that does make sense. Yeah, it's a big announcement to them. Sure, sure. <laughs> but there was there was a little bit. I mean, on the other on the flip side, there was a little bit of buzz around Annapolis. Like, oh, what else is coming? Yeah. Yeah, what's, I mean, what's, what's the surprise bill? What's the what's the extra thing around the corner? So as it turns out, there wasn't the giant surprise. And, okay. But people were running around with, you know, with, with their hair on fire trying to figure out what exactly was coming so they could try and, and prepare. But yeah, turns out it was everything that had already been introduced, which is not insignificant significant. And we've talked about Michael and Natasha Barry Raskovar on this program before. And I think if you look at that commentary, we'll put it on the link to this episode. Essentially, what he's saying here is that this is not the time to, to make major tax cuts, especially with, you know, potential economic downturn looming. And we know that the Kerwin Commission's recommendations are going to be very expensive. So, you're right, right. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Oh, my gosh. Already, already. We're like six minutes in. Okay. That commission's uh, recommendations are going to be very expensive. So I think Barry Raskovar is saying, look, you know, it's not the right time. I know what, you know, you're trying to do here, but this is probably not a good thing to do with the, you know, the unknown that Maryland faces moving forward. I mean, so much talk about economic uncertainty and, and I mean, it's, some of this is going to be partisan and some of this is going to be differential priorities, but uh, I mean, you run the numbers on the various things that the governor has tossed out in the bills and in the part of the state of the state. And it's, it's into the few hundred million dollar range. If you tally all this stuff, there's phase ins and other things sure, like that. Sure. But, but that's, that's, you know, that's a meaningful number, you, you know, even in a $19 billion budget, a, a half a billion dollars is a pretty big thing. Yeah, I mean, $500 million in targeted tax reductions over five years. As you said, there's a phase in, but including things like expanding credits for manufacturers and law enforcement officers, uh, so their retirement benefits, as well as a tax deduction on student loan interest, as you mentioned, tax cut for veterans. So still a robust package, but certainly was an interesting uh, state of the state and to watch everybody running around trying to figure out what exactly the governor was going to do. <laughs> yes. And, and and he went way out of his way. I mean, back to our back to the making the references to Washington. He went way out of his way to to lay on the 
the bipartisanship and collaborative nature of Annapolis in contrast with Washington, D.C. So that was an early theme. He made a, a quick reference to the Speaker of the House about being grateful for being allowed in to give the presentation. Mm. That's an immediate laugh yeah, line. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, he made an outreach to the Senate president about about their their, their common struggle. So, um, you know, he, he's hitting notes of bipartisanship at a time when, you know, Washington, D.C. could really use some of the same mentality. Right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I know a lot of people were watching this closely, including some media from outside of Maryland, right. for the potential that the governor could run for president. I don't know about either one of you, but I really didn't see that there. I thought he stuck to the script and he really was talking about Maryland in general and how he can work with the General Assembly to get some of his initiatives through. But it didn't, I don't know, some of it sounded presidential, but I I didn't get the sense that this was like, you know, an early announcement. And and here I come, I'm going to be on the national stage now and I'm going to run for president. I mean, it, it's it's not like it's not like anybody expects the Maryland governor to start talking about you know international oil security or <laughs> or you know nuclear weapons or other things like that. I mean, that's not his lane, right? right? right but right. if 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 the Larry Hogan brand that has some people a Twitter over you know over whether he may have national aspirations or other political aspirations after his role as as governor here. I mean, if if the brand is working with a Democratic legislature and finding a middle ground politically on a lot of issues, um, he doesn't have to. He doesn't really have to swerve to do that. Yeah, he, he can just keep away. doing what he's been doing. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Stay popular. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, another interesting tidbit there. He talked about his redistricting bill. And Natasha, mm. he made a comment and he said, don't put it in the drawer. What exactly – is he talking about when he makes that that term, put it in the drawer? I mean, we we all know that maybe around here, but for our listeners, can you explain what putting a bill in the drawer means? Yeah, no one wants their bill <laughs> to stay in the drawer. Right, right. <laughs> and what that means is you have a hearing, you're excited, you come down, you testify, you think it goes great, and then nothing. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and you pop in a week later and you're like, Looking at the voting list, Bill's not on that list. Mm-hmm. A week later, Bill's still not on that list. Suddenly you're at signing die, and it's like, whatever happened to that bill? Where's it never bill? left the drawer. Right. So so the, the, the metaphorical drawer being the sort of space between a public hearing and a voting session, the time when a committee or the full body would actually take a vote, like an up or down vote. Uh, we, you know, we, we hear this sometimes in Congress, bring this to the floor for an up or down vote. That's what I think those were basically the words that the governor used about uh, about his redistricting proposal. He said, let's just bring it out. Don't put it in the drawer. Bring it out for a vote. Let people have their say. Right. So, I mean, I, I guess the one takeaway is if if you are hearing that and you're not an Annapolis insider, you might come away with a sense that this was the only bill that got lost in a drawer during the legislative session. And that's. Not really the case. I mean, it's it's you know for for good or ill, it's a relatively common part of the process here. There are times when 
I mean, I, th- I see this on fiscal issues reasonably often, that there's a proposal that is really popular. It benefits a popular constituency. It may be a, a tax cut for senior citizens. And they, they vote, they rally, they show up, they, you know, they, they, they testify for the bill, they send lots of letters and so forth. No one really wants to vote no on that bill. Right. But at the same time, you have to have a balanced budget. And you can't afford a $800 million fiscal note on that bill. So rather than have all your colleagues vote no on the tax cut that would be extremely popular, that bill stays in the drawer, so to speak. No one has to take a difficult vote, and that's that's sort of the way Annapolis plays ball. So, you know, Larry Hogan can poke sticks a little bit at that part of the legislative process, but it, it's not like it's not like that bill was lonely by itself at the bottom of a drawer with no companions. There were yeah. there were probably <laughs> plenty of them in drawers around town. Yeah, yeah, we've all been victim of this too, right? Yes. I mean, we've all Good, had bad. bills yeah. stuck in the drawer. Right. Good, bad, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just that; it happens a lot. Yeah, and then, you know, it also depends on how you look at it. When you come back next year and you bring back the same bill, you can at least say that. It didn't die. No one no. voted it down. No, we, don't so, to, we don't have to change your exactly. vote, Senator. You know, <laughs> that's true. You, you know, so it just true. apparently never came up. <laughs> Always looking at the bright side. That's not a bad thing, right? Glass half full. Okay, so as the governor laid out his legislative proposals, his party brethren also laid out their legislative proposals, including a number of major initiatives. And let's talk about the Republican priorities, the GOP priorities. The first one being a one quarter percent across the board cut in the state income tax, which they estimate would cost the state treasury about four hundred million dollars per year. So income tax is big and visible. It's the it's the biggest mover in the state budget. And I mean, four hundred million bucks is real money. So that's that's enough to matter. I mean, this would be vulnerable to the same kind of criticisms that might have gotten thrown at at Governor Hogan's package of proposals that, you know, where where we can come come up with these things. What are you going to cut or how do you offset that in, in a budget that's already teetering on a fiscal crisis as soon as next year. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're, we're cash rich right now. We've got money in some reserves and so forth. And they've been talking about, what, you know, what do you do with that short term? But nobody's forecast is rosy for next year. And that's even assuming no no economic downturn. So lots to know, talk about downturn, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you know whether it's you know whether it's, whether it's shutdown related or just you know the economic cycle is pointing that way. So so that's you know that that lands in that conversation as you know one more thing to think about. So um, you know we'll, we'll we'll see proposals to do various things with the income tax, including an across the board like this. Um, who knows? Tough to tough to tough to swallow the number, I would think. Yeah, we've heard you know that the clouds are gathering from a number of folks, including the you know director of legislative services, Vicki Gruber, who spoke to our legislative committee this week. Right, and and she you know reiterated what we've been hearing from from Moody's and from the Board of Revenue Estimates and from basically everybody who's looking at the economy is you know we're we're teetering and. She actually had one chart that was, here's how it could look like in a recession. And those were some pretty yeah. big negatives awfully yeah. fast. Really scary mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. So we'll see what happens there. The second initiative they announced was the establishment of a state registry for murders and repeat violent offenders. And this would be similar to the one that exists for sexual offenders. So obviously a lot of support for the for the the list that exists for sexual offenders. But 
This one, you know, for murderers and repeat violent offenders, I would imagine there'd be a lot of support as well. But, you know, this is also going to garner a big hearing. There'll be a lot of folks pro and con. And this was another another big initiative for the GOP. It's I mean, these things tend to trigger some challenging civil liberties issues Mm -hmm. that if you if you end up on a list for life, which most of these tend to be, mm-hmm. um, we've heard. You know, there's a lot. A lot of these things sound appealing in concept, and then in practice, there's a variety of people who end up with, you know, get reckless at a party and have an indecent exposure charge or something Urinating along that land. Yeah, that mm-hmm. that sort of thing, which is not not exactly the person I think of as. I don't want that guy by my school. Right. Right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, the devil's in the details, like awful lots of different things. So I don't know how you write this bill. I don't know how you maintain these lists and what do you do with them. Um, but, uh, you know, that'll be that's a that's the, some of the policy is is in the, the fine tuning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right. This is one that will come out of the shoot probably with with a high popularity rating on its surface. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And another interesting initiative, this would be a measure to create a new class of quote-unquote special police officers. And really, this is to target, you know, school resource officers. So this would give local school systems the option of stationing a special police officer in every school. And we know that school security remains a tricky issue. But this is somewhat separate from the more divisive matters of gun regulation itself, right? Yeah, I, I think I think in general, like you know, limitations on gun ownership and things like that, we know those have a really sharp partisan split, and you know, the state has done a variety of things and and, and so forth. But those tend to be those tend to be issues where folks just retreat to their traditional corners. Mm-hmm. But the last couple of years, last year in particular. The notion of beefing up security in our public schools, and we had a terrible incident at a school in Maryland. Right. We've seen them around the country. Sadly, it seems like they're you know they're becoming more common. So you know, doing something on that front, having trained people or more staff, or building your buildings in a different way, or having more you know more surveillance cameras and other things like that. I mean, there's a lot of support for doing all those things, and. The placement of police officers versus just uh, just a senior, like you know, like retired officers right, or other right, things right. like that. Um, I, this is still, I think, up for grabs. Exactly what we want to do, what the state's willing to help fund, you know, what's what's the absolute expectation of of every school. But um, a lot of people want to see a police officer stationed in the school. Yeah, interesting concept, right? I mean, so this. This special class, they wouldn't have to go through all the traditional training, such as like traffic and and things like that. This would be a special class and and they'd be geared toward exactly what you just said, providing, you know, police protection in schools. So certainly an interesting concept. Yeah. Yeah. And we've also seen legislation in that's that's looking at this from a different angle about limiting the role of of school resource officers or school place police in sort of routine discipline like mm-hmm. you don't want you know let's not turn the cop into the guy with a paddle to scare the kids into mm-hmm. good behaviors so i mean you've got you've got sort of arrows pointing in multiple directions on this as a another sort of tricky policy issue where a lot of sensitivity and then you know from from people like us and from our school districts it'll turn into if you have really high expectations can we afford to do all these things right, right. do we do we not offer french because we have to have cops all right natasha i would say if this is another one where public opinion would be very high on this idea everybody i think would say 
You need to have some sort of protection in schools. Guns are a separate issue, but to have someone stationed at every school to provide protection, certainly I think that would pull well in the public. Yeah, I mean, I think it gets a lot of support, and I think there are a lot of tricky issues with it because you you certainly have people that are concerned about um, school-to-prison pipelines and going to the role of what they play and how that plays out with um, young children in schools. Um, it, it's it's interesting for sure, but no one no one wants unsafe schools. Right, right. So competing ideas there. You know, we'll have to wait and see. The final priority that was announced was another interesting one. So this is an idea that uh, things should go back to single member districts in the House of Delegates. Of course, instead of multi member districts as the House is currently constructed, and this is all about gerrymandering, right? I think I think in in at least in at least large part. I mean, right now, most of the state uh, there's a one state senator for a full district, and then three delegates run at large. And there are some specific places where they carve they carve out a senate district into a, a two delegate sub district and a one delegate sub district, and a couple places where there's three sub districts. But the majority of the state, it's a three person race district wide for for the House of Delegates. And you know, so, I mean, intuitively, why would this be something that one political party cares about? And presumably this is they feel the map drawing process is out of their hands, that it's mm-hmm. the legislative leadership who are guiding that and they end up on the losing side of this of this process. I mean, we know historically there are some there are sometimes have been. Uh, a given jurisdiction that doesn't have a resident delegate for a long time it was uh, Caroline yeah. County would have no no legislative representative who actually lives in the county and they feel like well we just don't get a voice we're in you know we're in one district that's relatively sparse and stretched across four counties three delegates from the other three counties and we're just left out right so i mean that's part of this conversation but but the idea of single member districts sort of opens things up to, to divide every Senate district into three pieces. Um, yeah. I, mm-hmm. So, I mean, district drawing is just inherently partisan and political and complicated. And then when the courts show up and they talked about, well, you have to draw districts to get representation for various classes of citizens and mm-hmm. don't leave people out. Um, this is, you know, this is, it's art and science and other stuff tossed in the mix, too. Yeah, I mean, you're never going to make everybody happy, right? No matter what you do, there's always going to be someone who feels left out or they, you know, they feel upset about how districts were drawn, regardless of, of who draws them. Right. Even, oh. even in the places where they hand this to, a, you know, they hand it to computer scientists and they do, you know, <laughs> they say, just have it come out of a system. And they say, well, what, what the heck happened here? Why is, why is this town split in four ways? It doesn't make any sense. Well, that's, that's the best we could do. We triangulated the whole thing using a, you know, just, just an algorithm. Well, you know, come on. I want, I want somebody, I want a person now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is an issue that certainly is not going away. And we're going to hear a lot of talk about redistricting throughout the 2019 session, but We'll keep you updated. We'll keep you updated. So we're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Democrats' priorities, and we'll also talk about medication-assisted treatment in state and local correctional facilities. There's a big push there. All that and more after the break.
Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Natasha Mayhew and Michael Sanderson. Let's talk about the Democrats' priorities. And the first one, this is something that we've heard a lot about over the years. There is a big push for this one as well, and that's the fight for 15. A $15 minimum wage. Maryland is at $10.10 after a a multi-year phase-in. And now we sit for the first time in a few years without having another pending increase. Mm. So so we're suddenly sort of stuck for the first time in a while. We've seen a bill – I mean – for a while, the term of art was a living wage. Right. That rather than you know, our, our minimum wage should be a living wage, meaning, in theory, that you can support at least a small family on one full time job um, at 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 that at that level. Mm-hmm. So, fifteen bucks has been sort of a proxy for that living wage idea, and it's caught in multiple places. It sounds like New Jersey is is probably going to pass something like this this year after some fits and starts. They join New York and at least a couple other states uh, that and have cities, if, right. yeah, a number of cities, mm-hmm. a few states. Mm-hmm. So this has this has been a movement in places that, that tend to be painted blue on election nights. Mm. And Maryland's one of those places. Uh, but as we know, you look at the map of Maryland more granular and not every part of it's so blue. And nope. not everybody's going to have a uniform feeling about this idea, even if the bill starts out relatively clean. Mm -hmm. So Natasha, I mean, this sounds like it has all the trimmings of being a really long day here in Annapolis. And I mean, similar to what we've seen with the sick leave bill, it's going to be a hearing that will last throughout the day. There'll be multiple panels, panels, panels on panels with every stakeholder you can imagine um, having a say on what goes on here and whether they want um, the want the state to phase into 15, whether they don't, your business interests, um, camp counselors, all sorts of smaller groups and big groups of people. Yeah. And then, of course, the advocates. But those groups that you just spoke of, I think they'll be seeking sort of carve outs, right? So maybe for seasonal employees, maybe for kids, teenagers, maybe they think that shouldn't be $15 an hour. And and then we've also heard talk about maybe a regional difference in how uh, the minimum wage would work. I think we actually heard that from President Miller at one point this year. So a lot of questions to be asked here, but uh, certainly has all the all the symptoms of a really long day. Michael. I just think this is it looks like it's it looks like it's on track to happen this year. I think the smart money is that a bill like this probably passes. I'm not sure what the governor does at the end of a process and how many changes get made that may make it more to the governor's liking. But I think I think something probably makes it out of the legislature this year. But this isn't as simple as it's not a one sentence bill where you just bracket 1010 mm. and you put in 15 bucks or you spell out the number for a few years. You'll have that whole debate about what do you do with your seasonal workers? You know, the folks from Trimpers and Ocean City, they'll come up and they'll talk about you know, how how difficult it'll be. These these short time employees and so forth. And you'll have some sympathy for that, mm-hmm. you know, crab pickers and agricultural workers and so forth. So there's, many different groups. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and, bartender, servers. Yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, there's a tip exemption, and this bill says we should eventually get to the point where there's no longer a tip exemption. So even even servers at restaurants would be entitled to a full $15 minimum wage, which m- presumably turns a lot of places into do not tip locations. Mm-hmm. And so do you end up with those employees suddenly – 
no longer liking this idea. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> DC, I think, is going through this now, where they, right. you know, they they passed this this by referendum. Now they're trying to get it put back. A lot of servers, and you know, you're down there eating dinner. You're at a bar. You see all these signs everywhere, like you know, re- you know, repeal it, repeal it, repeal it. And you talk to the servers and bartenders, and they're like, "I make way more in tips than I would typically." Uh, so if people don't think they need a tip anymore, that's not good for me. So while they're trying to help me, maybe not. Right. So, 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 I mean, this isn't a centerpiece issue for, for Mako. I I suspect there will be some elected officials from within county government who have something to say about it and whether it's on behalf of their county government and, and the cost for employees and so forth, or whether they're thinking about the economic effects on businesses and so forth in their jurisdiction. I think we'll see some county players involved, but it's not going to be a centerpiece issue for, for our association. And, and you know, counties aren't in the middle of this. This is really a, between the state and private businesses. Right. So the second initiative that was announced by the Democrats was a statewide polystyrene ban. And a lot of people refer to polystyrene as styrofoam. However, that's just a trademark by Dow Chemical Company. Okay, so that's not exactly what <laughs> we're talking I learned. about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Me too. So polystyrene is actually a type of plastic that's manufactured from non-renewable fossil fuels and synthetic chemicals. And this is an idea that we've also heard about for a few years. But the fact that this is now one of the priorities seems like this bill is ready to move as well. Yeah, so I mean, that's always writing on the wall to have you know these early session press conferences by I mean, especially you know in all candor, when the Democratic Party pulls together leadership, there's enough votes to pass a bill right there at the mm-hmm. press conference, right. Mm-hmm. Right? right? So so you can look around and you can see the chairs of the committees and you can see the subcommittee chairs and you see you know member after member there. Um, yeah, like it or not, there's a difference between the majority party and the minority party. So um, for this to be included on a relatively short list of big priorities for the session at a here are the things we're going to accomplish this year. I mean, that that makes it look like the issue is tipped. And, and there, I mean, there's some other writing on the wall that, that supports that as well. Yeah. So like past few years, this has been duly assigned in the Senate, meaning that two committees would have had to agree to let this bill out. And that was EHE, the environmental, uh, the environmental committee, and then the Senate Finance Committee. It's a right? lot harder to pass the bill, and you got to get it through two different committees. Yeah, nobody wants to see that, right? <laughs> That's not good. That means your bill could end up in a drawer, but mm-hmm. multiple this, drawers. Multiple yeah, drawers. <laughs> this year, this year though, interestingly, uh, this bill was only assigned in the Senate to the EHE committee, so the environmental committee. And on the floor of the Senate, uh, you had a senator question. President Miller about the assignment and President Miller said, look, it's only going to be one committee. This is an environmental issue. It's not a business issue. So I think maybe that's what you're referring to, Michael. And that, yeah. that does make this even more likely to, to be on the move. I mean, we heard a little a little back and forth on the floor of the Senate about that procedural difference that this bill has mm-hmm. a different assignment this year than last. Um, but, I, you know, again, all all the indications are that there's going to be a debate about this, but this bill will probably make it to the floor of both the House and the Senate, probably make it out of the legislature this year. Yeah. So this is, you know, again, the stuff that we make cups, plates, takeout food containers. It's, it's a big deal. I'm sure you'll see a lot of businesses and, and trade groups show up and oppose this one as well. <laughs> bunch of opposition and then also a lot of definitional stuff yes. i've been in yeah. i've been in the room i think we probably have all seen this debate because it's been you know each year for the last few at least mm-hmm. but 
this is a definitional conundrum because people show up with those, like like a whole backpack full of these these different this different equipment, right? Yes, like, yes. look, what about this plastic fork? What do you think? Is that in or out? No, no, this is good. Actually, you're wrong on your bill. This is banned. You don't want that, right? And right. so there you got you got this big circular debate, and you know, there's sort of a I know it when I see it definition that applies to styrofoam and pornography. Right. So I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, it's a, it's the same kind of thing. Um, we think we know what we're doing here, but you know, writing the bill is trickier than just saying, you know, let's not have the the dirty stuff. Let's try and use compostable materials or whatever. So uh, it'll it'll be tricky, but you know, I think yeah, yeah. Some smart money is something moves. I think mm-hmm. yeah, another long day in committee there. <laughs> so another initiative: protecting health insurance reforms, and this includes the. Affordable Care Act, the ban on denying insurance for pre-existing conditions. We know that a federal judge in Texas actually struck down the individual mandate as unconstitutional. So this is, I think a lot of states are looking at this, but this is Maryland saying we need to put some structure into place to make sure we're protected. I I guess it's basically a a state-level backstop in the event that the federal government is suddenly finds the you know if if the whole ACA is is found to be unconstitutional or is stayed mm-hmm. for some stretch of time you don't want to have to reconvene the legislature to build the backstop then so maybe you know maybe we'll actually learn our lesson from sports wagering or other things <laughs> where we could have been say, ahead, yeah. we could have been ahead of the game so yeah. in, in this case i mean it sounds like there's probably popular support to to more or less have a a belt and suspenders situation so you don't have marylanders who suddenly find themselves out of luck or uncoverable mm-hmm. in the, in the you know in the in the marketplace and so forth. So that's that sounds to be what what they have in mind. There's still a big fiscal consequence. One of the things Vicky Gruber shared with with right. our, with us uh, earlier this week was if if the state no longer receives the assistance through the Affordable Care Act, mostly for expanding Medicaid. That's a big number, like a really big number, right? <laughs> really big number. Yeah. So that's so you know, many big numbers. That's this another. Yeah, <laughs> these, these, these looming question mark numbers, and you know, there's like a billion here and a billion there, and then that's like a two yeah, billion. What's a billion number. among friends? <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, yeah. we'll see. Okay, so that's a big deal. And then Natasha, I know you've been following this next one. Tobacco 21, and this is all about limiting tobacco use to those over or at least 21 years of age. This is a top priority for the Legislative Black Caucus, and this has already been done by six other states. So, I mean, what are we looking at here? New Jersey, Massachusetts, Oregon, Hawaii, Maine. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's been bills in for a number of of years, actually, um, with strong backing from our uh, county health departments um, to raise the age to 21. And now they've got momentum. They've got the two committee chairs, um, uh, Chair of Economic Matters in the House, Chair of Finance in the Senate. Um, Those are big backers for the bill. And then, as you stated, the Black Caucus, mm-hmm. and now it's a right. Democratic priority. And I mean, when you have committee chairs as a sponsor, that's significant, right? Yeah, right. carries weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that that pitch that if you can if you can keep people from starting in their teens, they may never get hooked to the substance. Is the really compelling mm-hmm. pitch here? I mean, I mean, there's going to be a there's always the argument about individual responsibility and you know old enough to be you know to to serve in the military and then have privileges. And I mean, that's that's the usual debate We've that goes on that here. A lot, right? right, that's the that's the, the standard debate here, and it's a fair one to have. Mm-hmm. But the and the argue with argument with smoking is the 
Now the, the 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 ability to quit is yeah, is really you tough, start. right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's that's the public health argument generally, and and you know, Medicaid and other social health programs are drained dramatically because of consequences from smoking. We know sure. that mm-hmm. yeah. it's a big deal. So another initiative banning 3D guns and gun building kits that hmm. are used to create ghost guns. We've heard about this. This is seems like a, a pretty easy one, but I'm, I'm sure it won't be. Right. I mean, I'm sure there'll be debate. Yeah, I, I suspect so. I mean, I mean, gun issues, even even toy guns and gun yeah, kits yeah. and so <laughs> forth, they still res- they still pull all all the same strings of individual responsibility and Second Amendment guarantees my right and don't tread on me and and things of that nature. So I think we'll we'll hear a lot of the same debate. But um, I don't know. This is on the Democratic Party list for a reason. Right? Yeah, it's likely yeah. to move. And then adding $20 million to the state's budget for child care tax credits to expand access to the program. I mean, look, another $20 million. I mean, we're talking about budget issues here, but, you know, this right. is another priority, and, and it seems like an important one. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is, this this whole debate about things you can do under the tax code to to benefit one group or benefit one activity or one kind of business. I mean, this goes on all the time, but that's a big part of what tax policy is. And then looming in the background is this sort of implied notion that if it weren't for this carve out and that loophole and this special exemption and this special benefit, we could just reduce the rates on everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sort of like, you know, that's, that's a tension that always is out there in tax policy. But I mean, who's going to say, Oh, you know, working families who are having trouble, you know, make, making ends meet and they can barely afford childcare. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to have leave those people. So that's a sympathetic audience as well, right? Just right. like your hometown heroes, the, the debate that they've been in for the last few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is, and it's going to be hard to to say no. And then, of course, we have likely a focus on both the short and long term funding of the. I don't even know if I can say the word, Michael. No, 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 we're not, no, we're not doing, we're not doing schools. No, no, right, of, of that commission. Right, Next stop. Yeah, we're not talking about that. <laughs> Next stop. And um, I, so let's get into. Uh, a topic that has grabbed some early attention this session among counties and other stakeholders, and that is medication-assisted treatment, specifically for the population of our prisons and our jails. So, Natasha, you've been all over this. You've been covering this extensively. Let's talk about this and why this has got so much attention and why it's such a tricky issue. Yeah, so um, there's a bill put in um, to require medication-assisted treatment in the prisons and jails. Um, I'll take a step back and probably give a big picture kind of national outlook on this as to where is this coming from? Um, You know, so medication assisted treatment um, for opioid use disorders, typically you'll hear about methadone, buprenorphine or Vivitrol. Um, So in addition to counseling, you're provided these medications to either help um, wean you off of um, the opioids you're using or um, maintain you so that you're not getting high, um, but that you're under the maintenance of medication to continue living your best life. So you will withdraw maybe. and that's Exactly. The, right. Exactly. But then you're also not um, using um, illicitly. Sure. So uh, this is all about the op- opioid epidemic. That's what we're talking about here. Yes, okay. exactly. So where this comes from, um, from a national perspective, you have 
legislation and litigation issues here. So in a few states, there's been actually about four cases in which um, a state jail was sued Mm -hmm. under um, the American Disabilities Act. And the argument there is that um, denying someone um, their treatment Mm -hmm. um, is a violation of that act as opioid use disorder is a disability. Mm -hmm. Um, So you'd think of this in similar terms to if you had diabetes, you'd be provided insulin. Right. And so... Uh, the argument there is I have an opioid use disorder and I'm either entering the system and I'm on this treatment or I'm suffering and I need to be put on treatment and the option isn't there for me. Right. And this is this is an issue for both, like you said, prisons and jails. So, you know, in prisons being, at least in Maryland, the state facility for people with long sentences, but also this is an issue in the county jails mm-hmm. where most people who have the like, you know, 18 month year or less and also people being held pretrial. Um, a lot of, most of those people are in a county jail, so it's a right. county issue as well as a state government issue. Yeah, and in the county jails, because people cycle um, through for short amounts of time, you actually do see a lot of people with substance use disorders, mental health issues um, that are cycling in and out because of their addiction, their illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this ends up being a big problem for the jails as well. Yeah. And so I'm assuming if there's legislation here, I'm assuming that at least not all of the prisons or the jails in Maryland are offering medication-assisted treatment, or at least not all of the options that you mentioned earlier. So what is the status right now in Maryland? What are our prisons and jails doing currently? Right. Um, so it's um, it's a mix of things. Mm-hmm. So you're right that there's nowhere that's doing everything. Um, you have some jails that offer Vivitrol. Um, there are some that provide methadone to pregnant inmates. There are some that provide buprenorphine. Um, some provide just counseling. Um, you could think of that in terms of your like AAs and NAs. Mm-hmm. Um, some partner with their health departments to provide services. Um, so it's certainly um, across the board, you might have some that do nothing at all. So um, this bill would set the stage that you'd have to require uh, provide me- uh, medication-assisted treatment, and you'd have to provide that range of options, those wow. three drugs. So it seems sort of, it's a big deal, right? And I mean, that's probably going to be expensive. I, I mean, there's, there's no place we go to, that we be in Mako, when we go out and visit with the elected leaders in counties, there's no place we visit that says, yeah, no, no opioid problem here. It's not, it's not our issue. Right. I mean, everybody, I mean, the, you know, the, the specifics are different in one place versus another, but this has hit every part of our state and the numbers, I mean, we we're trying to make gains and we're, we're doing what we can to address this, but it's not like there's a solution in sight. So we know there's a lot of people who, who end up with, you know, minor crimes largely because they've got a drug problem or a mental illness or mm-hmm. both. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the treatment they need. And so they end up, you know, scrambling around to get their fix or, you know, you know, doing, you know, breaking and entering and other things like that. I mean, that's, that, that's the nature of a big part of people who end up in our local jails right. is because of these kind of problems. And because in a lot of cases they're going untreated, 
So I mean, one argument is let's catch a lot of people in a spot where we've got them. If you're in the jail, you can actually stay clean long enough right. for some of these medicines to work effectively. Uh, you may have them in a situation where you can get some people out of that cycle and making that investment in the person when you have them might mean they don't come back in six months mm-hmm. or six weeks yep. and they don't end up being that frequent flyer that your ambulance system has to go out and you know use the Narcan to resuscitate them you know every two weeks exactly you know and as you indicated um you know it'll be expensive and it's not going to be easy and that goes to the scope of the problem i mean even when you're in the communities getting treatment isn't easy so this is a big issue um for the state for the residents i mean the crisis hits everyone and really this is one of the ways where everyone's trying to find ways where you can, um, you know, tackle the epidemic, really reach people where they are and try to get them into treatment. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's hard to criticize people putting ideals on the table, right? But of course, we know this will be very expensive. So the plan on the table now, is this going to be state funded? Is this a, a cost split with the counties? What is exactly on the table? What are we seeing in the legislation? Um, the bill puts uh, puts the cost on the state to provide um, uh, the treatment in jails and prisons. Right. And I, I mean, the, the thinking there has to be that's the way to keep this from being wholly uneven. I mean, right mm-hmm. now, right now, you know, a given county gets a grant. And now they're doing Vivitrol. The county next door has put in some some county cash, and they're doing Bup. There's somebody else who's doing, you know, well, we're just doing 12-step programs over here, and that's more or less through nonprofits, so that's kind of our free service. But it's a, it's a total mixed bag. Right. And, I mean, nobody's having perfect results with any of this. But, it, you know, if the, the idea is, okay, make this a state responsibility so that it's not a function of are we going to do this or are we going to build that park, right? I mean, you don't want to have that be the fight. Right. So get it out of that local decision. Get it out of, well, our, our jurisdiction just doesn't have, doesn't have the means to do this. Mm-hmm. To say, all right, all right, everybody deserves, you know, this kind of a safety net. Right. And exactly. You want to make sure that it's accessible across the board and you'll need doctors and nurse practitioners and um, other sources of connections to treatment um, that currently aren't there. The way um, things work in the jails now when you're providing medical services, it's not on the scale. So it's certainly a scale up and would require help from the state to do that funding, examination and treatment of inmates. So to me, it, it sounds like, I mean, if we could be facing potential lawsuits and this is stuff that's happening in other states litigation, if the state's going to put up a lot of money and help us to do this, that sounds good, right? But we know this is a very controversial idea. Well, I think I think it is for for reasons that 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 make some sense when you take a few steps back. If you're just having a conversation about your incarcerated population and you say you know you have these problems, so let's do something about it. Okay, that sounds fine, but we're we're in an environment where there are limited resources to do public priorities and you take a few steps back and you say well it's not just people in jail it's not just offenders who have drug problems there's all sorts of there are kids in our schools there are seniors at the mm-hmm. senior centers my neighbor you know i mean i know lots of people around and there's a lot of those people like it's tough to find treatment we have a shortage of beds we have mm-hmm. a shortage of people who will take insurance or will take medicaid 
Medicaid and so forth. So on another level, you can, you can kind of understand when somebody says, why do you have to go to jail to get treatment? That seems wrong. Why do you, I mean, do you have to, you know, I have to go beat somebody up in order to get, you know, to get Vivitrol? Right. Because I, I can't afford it. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the impl- uh, implementation issues after that, because going back to the fact that there is a shortage of beds and treatment in the community, um, particularly with jails, these are short sentences. So, you, you know, you'll establish a program, get them on, um, in treatment while they're in the jail. And then the question becomes, will there be the support there in the communities when they're reentering? Mm, right. uh, will they be able to continue that treatment and have treatment providers readily available? Because in some parts of the state, it is really sparse. That's for a great treatment. point, right, right? Especially maintenance medicine like mm-hmm. like methadone. If you end up you know in the local jail for four months, right? I mean, right. we we get a lot of we get a lot of ninety hundred twenty day sentences. They stay in the local jail for three months and four months, and then they get let go. And so, okay, you've been on a maintenance med, which means you're still chemically addicted to heroin or an opioid, and you've been using a substitute medicine that sort of scratches the itch, but it doesn't make it go away. Right. Mm-hmm. As long as you get your medicine on your cycle that you need, you basically are okay and you can function fine, but then you get let go and you're on your own. I mean, I hope you've got the insurance to cover it. I hope you've got the the means to get to the clinic. I hope your car didn't break down that day and so right. forth. And I mean, so that's, that's one of your worries too, is you're patching over maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to have a warm handoff now. And so to scale it off, it'll make it difficult. Mm. Um, but I, I think what you see with this issue is a lot of people want to see solutions to this the opioid crisis and solutions to improving um um, people's uh, ability to access treatment um and there's going to be questions and um you know uh lots of talks about how you actually implement these sorts of things um but we're certainly seeing that a spirit is there to have something happen here yeah you could you can you can save a lot of maryland lives by doing this yeah i don't think i don't think there's anyone who doesn't know someone who's been affected by this epidemic but you know another point i think natasha you made it earlier today was what about people with alcoholism right i mean there are going to be people who say, well, if we're going to do this for opioids, we need to do it for other drugs and, and alcohol. And so a lot of complicated issues to sort out here, but this sounds like it's going to be a big deal this session. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So is this one of those all day hearings you think again, this is going to oh, be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. This, <laughs> oh, this yeah. sounds like a, like a work group. Get yeah. Every, get everybody exactly. around one of those big oval tables and you lock the door and maybe you do that four or five times. And hopefully by the middle of March, you come out with a deal. Well, Natasha, yeah. I hope you're not locked in a room to the middle of March, but you know, you're the expert on this one. They're going to have to have you in that room. They better, yeah. if they're going to do anything, right? Okay. Okay. Well, we hope she's not locked up. We're good. We want to have her back on the podcast, but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, this is going to be a big issue, and uh, Natasha, you'll keep an eye on it for us. Oh, definitely, and I'm always happy to come back whenever you guys want me. Excellent. (laughs) All right, so that'll do it for this episode of the podcast. Anything either one of you want to close with before we wrap up? 76 degrees and balmy on the beaches of Guam today. I'm just saying here it's about 14 degrees and miserable. Feels like seven. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) It's just brutal. It's brutal. This polar vortex thing in a... Oh my gosh! Not good. Get out of town. Not good. (laughs) Guam does not have any polar vortices at any time of year. No, we should all be in Guam. Is that a scientific fact? (laughs) Okay. All right. Very good. So that'll do it for this episode of the podcast. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, give us a like, share it on Facebook, Twitter, whatever platform you use, and let your friends know. 
For Michael and Natasha, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you next week. Have a great day.